Good. Right. So this is um, one of our series of sermons looking at heroes of faith. And the hero I've been challenged to consider is David, which on the face of it seems quite simple. Now, television these days always seems to be a long, long series of repeats. So apologies for what might seem like a repeat of a sermon delivered two months ago. In the earlier part of this year, uh, a number of us undertook a short course on the preparation of sermons. And I was given the Old Testament reading of David and Goliath, on which to base a sermon. And that gave me uh, a reason to reconsider uh, a story which I'd known since my youth. Now, I wasn't available here to deliver that on on that day in June, um, which is the day the readings appear in the lectionary, as I was in Leon C visiting my son, daughter-in-law and granddaughter. But I did hear the readings again on that day in their church, and that gave me another uh, series of uh, another reason to think again on, on the, the background to this reading. And so that's what I want to share with you this morning. I think we can all remember the first time we heard this story of David and Goliath when we were young. I remember uh, my Roman Catholic primary school teacher, Sister Gemma, relating how David, a young shepherd, was able to bring down a huge warrior, Goliath, an Arnie Schwarzenegger of a man, armed only with a catapult and faith in God. And drawing another analogy with, uh, with the cinema, uh, it's not unlike the Star Wars story of, uh, of Luke Skywalker, uh, finding the weak point of the battle star and penetrating that weakness with the use of the force. Let the force be with you. But reading the passage again, and the narrative within it sits, there is a different interpretation. The Philistine and the, Israeli and the Israelite armies are drawn up in line of battle, opposing each other across a valley. And both generals know that to engage the enemy, they must go into the valley, which will expose them to certain defeat from the opposition, who are on the high ground opposite. So the situation is stalemate. Now to break the stalemate, each general agrees that it will put forward a champion to face one another in single combat, and the victor will decide the day. The Philistines had no hesitation of putting forward Goliath, six cubits and a span tall, nine foot six, although certain scholars translate his height as four cubits and a span, perhaps a more believable six foot six, but even so a big man. Now these events took place some 3,000 years ago, around 1,000 BC, and the historian Bethany Hughes describes how a warrior at this time was probably in his late teens or early 20s, around the age of an Olympic athlete today. So the age difference between David and Goliath is probably not that great. And an army at that time comprised heavy infantry, cavalry and slingers. And Goliath was a heavy infantryman. And the Philistines expected the Israelite champion to be an equivalent warrior. But David was a skinful slinger. And having perfected that use as a shepherd. Now David was very confident in his own ability. And he argues with Saul that your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this Philistine should be like one of them, since he has defied defied the armies of the living God. Now David is armed with a slingshot, not a catapult. And the slingshot is a very potent weapon. David refused armour because he couldn't wield a slingshot wearing armour. And David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi, put them in his shepherd's bag. Now the staff is important because it can be used in conjunction with a slingshot to increase its power and its range. So all of a sudden the fight is not uneven. Perhaps it's even uh, balanced 
in David's favour. Now David stuns Goliath before before Goliath can draw his sword. And David runs up to the fallen champion, grasps Goliath's sword, drew it from its sheath and killed him with it. And the Philistines saw the champion was dead and they fled. So David's achievement is impressive, but not miraculous. So where does that leave our story? David has absolute faith in God and absolute belief in his own ability, which his faith in God redoubles. And perhaps that's the miracle. Did David seek God's support to help him in this action? Or did God choose David because of his confidence and skill? Perhaps it's a combination of both. And this event marks a major crossroads in Jewish history. It marks the victory of the Israelites over the Philistines, the start of David's rise to power and the demise of Saul, and the founding of the house of David, into whose line Christ, the Messiah, would be born. Now these events have been interpreted in many ways. David is seen as the Messiah himself, a leader appearing out of obscurity to lead the Israelites to victory. Indeed, many people expected the Messiah to be a David-like character. And the choice of David by God to be king is the origin of the concept of the monarch's rule to, to rule by divine right, which the echoes of which remain in our own monarchy. Now, David was a skillful soldier. In today's parlance, we would call him a member of the special forces who tip the balance of power where there's an impasse between opposing conventional forces. And so, where are we in this story? We can't all be Davids. Everyone can't be a member of a special force. If we were, we wouldn't be special. We're one of the multitudes of infantry who maintain the balance. But infantry must have faith in their leaders and their champions, as without that faith, the line will break and the day will be lost. So what of David? Is he a role model for us to follow? A chivalrous warrior fighting for God? Well, spoiler alert, the story doesn't fully pan out that way. David certainly has absolute faith in God and will become a skilled general and an accomplished poet, uh, as revealed to us in the Psalms, but his morals are questionable. The methods he uses to win Bathsheba to his wife are dubious. And while he doesn't exactly break the law, today we would say his observance of the ministerial code is certainly doubtful. And David will capture the sacred city of Jerusalem and bring the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Moriah, the Holy of Holies. But he will not build the temple. That will be left to his son, King Solomon. And some interpretations of this text are that God did not allow David to build the temple as punishment for the blood on his hands subduing his enemies. David will marry Bathsheba, who will be the mother of Solomon. But God will reapprove David of the way he he courted Bathsheba, causing David to be humbled. And in fact, David admits, I have sinned before God. So David is a great warrior, a leader and a poet who reveres God and carries out God's plans. Indeed, it would appear that God specially chose him for the task. But God is human, but, sorry, David is human and is flawed, so perhaps not unlike us. So what's the message? Love God and praise God, recognise your strengths and use them to carry out God's aims. But remember you're human, and just because you carry out God's plans, it doesn't negate you from respecting your neighbour. And as Christ told us, and we frequently repeat, the greatest of the commandments are love God with all your heart, all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbour as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now the big positive we see in this story of David and Goliath is faith. David's belief in his own ability, 
reinforced by his faith in God, Saul's faith in David, and the Israelites' army's faith in Saul. Now in the New Testament reading, we see another example of faith, or perhaps faltering faith, in the face of adversity. Christ had been preaching to a large crowd on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And as evening approached, he asked his disciples, who were all ex- who were, most of whom were experienced fishermen, to take him by boat to the opposite shore to leave the crowd which had gathered. And Christ settled down to sleep in the stern of the boat, while the disciples managed the boat. And at this point, a storm arises. The apostles are losing the battle, and the weather, um, uh, the uh, battle against the weather, and the boat is sinking. But Christ is asleep. They wake Christ, saying, Teacher, do you not care we are perishing? To which Christ replies, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? So what is faith? My day job involves advising managers in complex managed organisations engaged in high-hazard industries about how to achieve safety. An example I often use is ensure, assure and faith. In a complex organisation, the challenge is often to identify who is actually responsible for carrying out a task that's important to safety. To emphasise the point, I ask a responsible manager to consider who are, who are ensuring things, who are assuring things, and where does faith sit. Ensure means that you, you must do something. Assure means that somebody else must do something, but you depend upon it. Hence, you must have evidence that it's been done. And a simple example is fitting a new gas boiler. Uh, the, um, the person who installs it must ensure it's fitted correctly. But you as the homeowner must have evidence that it's being fitted correctly. And the, the, uh, the, the fitter will give you a certificate of conformity, your assurance. Faith, however, is belief without proof. If you didn't take the right action or have evidence that the right action has been taken, you're reliant on faith. And in high hazard industries, and in fact fitting gas boilers for that matter, faith is not sufficient. But that's what both David and the disciples were both faced with. Now it's worth comparing David's response to the prospect of fighting Goliath and the disciples' response to the prospect of fighting a storm. All were skilled men, all recognised the danger ahead, and all had the wherewithal to combat it. David trusted in his own ability, and he convinced Saul of that. And the Israelites had faith in Saul, or they would have fled, perhaps as we see government forces doing in Afghanistan today. Faith held the army together and so won the day. The disciples had been with Christ throughout his ministry, but even so, their faith was fragile. When tested, Christ was forced to say, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And even after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Thomas still had doubts. So where do we stand? I have to admit, I fear I am with the disciples in the face of the storm, or with Thomas not having seen the wounds of the risen Christ. I find it difficult to believe without proof. But that's what we're asked to do. Faith does not create something out of nothing. David's skill with a slingshot was there, and Christ's ability to calm the seas was there. David had faith that he could defeat Goliath, and the disciples' fear was that the storm was stronger than Christ. So what do we take away from David in the face of Goliath, and the disciples in the face of the storm? The Israelites faced defeat at the hands of the Philistines, but faith in David's skill carried the day. Christ took his disciples to the brink of a watery grave to demonstrate what faith meant. So faith is belief without proof, 
It's easy to have faith in a comfortable setting such as St. Thomas's, but the challenge is to maintain that faith in the face of adversity. We have seen how David responded and how the disciples responded. How might we respond? How do we respond? Thank you.